Hi, and welcome to this month's podcast. Cassian and I feel hugely privileged that you continue to check in with us to hear about the latest research that's going on in social care and education, and in particular, what it might mean for practice. Today's guest is Dr. Georgia Phillip. Georgia is a lecturer and research fellow at the Centre for Research on Children and Families here at the University of East Anglia. In our discussion, a particular highlight for me was hearing about Georgia's illuminating research into the experiences of fathers in care proceedings. For me, the findings opened the way to a more nuanced understanding of working with fathers and therefore gives consideration to what we may do differently to continue to safeguard children. I hope you enjoy the episode. Georgia, lovely to have you with us today. Oh, thanks for asking me. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Let's start at the beginning. How, how did you come to be a researcher, Georgia? So the first big piece of research I got was my PhD research, which was about fathering after separation and divorce. And I just loved it. That really told me that I wanted to do more research. Um, that was a qualitative study. And I interviewed fathers who had managed relationships with their children after separation and divorce so yeah so that that was the, the first sort of piece of um, research I did and the first that looked at men's experiences of doing fathering if you like and then after that I came to UEA because I did a postdoctoral fellowship and that's where I sort of entered a social work department and we looked at services for separating parents and we looked at those in terms of the extent to which they were inclusive of fathers or we were analysing outcomes in terms of you know what difference those kinds of programmes made to fathers. So yeah that's how I wound up in the social work department at, at UEA. How did you come to be doing a PhD in the first place? Was that based on some work experience or was it just the general interest in what you were doing? Um, I'd been a sociology lecturer for about, oh God, about 14 years or so before that. Sociology is my background. I sort of specialised in family sociology. I had um, other, I, I guess, personal interests, for instance, having been cared for by my dad as, as a main parent when my parents separated, which was quite unusual in those times. So I think I had, as ever, you know, many people bring their kind of personal as well as their intellectual interests. Um, when they, When those kind of align, that's often where you begin to develop a a topic that you really want to know more about that's how it worked for me yeah so it sounds like men's family roles and what they're up against has been a theme right from the start of your research and that's brought you right up to present day with the most recent study so yeah maybe should we talk a bit about yeah what you've been looking at in terms of fathers and the care system So, yeah, so we've been researching fathers for actually it's probably getting on for about seven, at least seven years now through the department at UEA. Um, And the first project that we did was called Counting Fathers In. And I developed that partly through working with John Clifton, you know, another researcher at UEA. And he'd done some really interesting work on birth fathers who'd had children adopted. And we then worked with Marion Brandon to develop this proposal because we were all interested in kind of learning more about fathers' stories um, and also looking at fathers 
father engagement in the context of child protection services. So that first study, Counting Fathers In, that was about fathers' experiences of child protection. And then out of that, or as part of that, we got really interested in a group of perhaps the most marginalised fathers, particularly those who had experienced care proceedings and, and some of those men had been through that situation more than one time. And alongside that, we were aware that there was some interesting and important research going on about mothers who had you know, experienced the repeat removal of children by Karen Broadhurst and her colleagues at Lancaster University. So, you know, we we just really felt that there was a need to complement that work because it was really valuable, but there was no equivalent knowledge about fathers who were facing similar situations. So that then became our collaboration and our proposal for the Up Against It study, which was very much about, you know, meeting that knowledge gap and doing some research that, that looked at, at fathers' experiences of care proceedings and particularly of of repeat care proceedings. Sounds like a massive undertaking. (laughs) It was. (laughs) How did you go about it? What, What did you do? So the Up Against It project was funded by the Nuffield Foundation, as was Counting Fathers In. And we had we had a you know a, a good chunk of time. Both of the studies were around two, two and a half years long. And Up Against It had a qualitative and a quantitative element. And maybe I'll say a little bit about each of those. So the quantitative element was was really interesting and novel, I guess, in that we worked with CAFCAS, so that's the Child and Family Court Advisory and Support Service, and we were able to have access to 10 years worth of their administrative data. So that means records of all cases where there was an application by the local authority for for a care order. And for the first time, we were able to analyse that data, just specifically in terms of numbers of fathers who were named and sort of named as a party to that case. So it was just, you know, we were have be able to have the first look at what that data looks like if we just look at fathers, both fathers who appear for the first time in a care proceedings case, but also to try and look at fathers who return more than one time. And then the other important part of that analysis that was also novel was that we did some analysis to try and look at not not just whether fathers return, but who they return with. And again, we made some comparisons between fathers and mothers in terms of not just numbers of cases and numbers of cases that appear more than once, but also who parents return to court with, because we feel that was really important to know as part of understanding that there's a you know wide anxiety and agreement that the, this problem of repeat care proceedings or parents losing um, more than one child from their care is, is really serious, has massive human cost. But we need, you know, we need to get a much richer picture of of the circumstances in which that's happening. And we need equivalent knowledge. We need knowledge about mothers and about fathers involved in those situations. Just so we're clear, when we're talking about care orders, is that when the application is made to put a child or children into the local authority care? Is that what we're talking about within the court? Yeah, so it's the most serious, most high stakes, you know, situation that families and local authorities face where a decision is made by the local authority to make an application to the court to remove that child from its birth family, sometimes permanently. And it means that the local authority will take on legal parental responsibility and that parents will lose that. So it's a really serious, and if I can put it this way, really high stakes, difficult situation for for everyone involved. So there's some overlap between those two studies. And so the first one, you were looking at father's just involved with social services and and child protection processes. And then the second study, you're just focusing at 
the crisis point where all other avenues have failed and they're going to the courts for, for child removal. Yeah, there was a definite overlap. And in a way that comes out of the qualitative elements in both studies in that we did what's called a qualitative longitudinal in-depth study. So in both of the projects, we were able to recruit a group of fathers and then follow them over time. So in both studies, we were able to see what happened. Um, so we might have followed fathers as they went through child protection cases and some of those things were not resolved and it ended up becoming a care proceedings case. Similarly in the up against it study we were following fathers over time where they may have had children removed from their care but they may be then involved in a subsequent set of care proceedings or they may be attempting to you know rebuild their lives or access other services to sort of cope with the removal of a child. So in both instances if you see what I mean the overlap is there because we were trying to look at fathers lives and their encounters with services as they unfolded in real time we felt that was really important from a practice point of view because not only were we building this very rich full picture of fathers lives and relationships and the circumstances that they were trying to do fathering and and, and you know exist in but also we were mapping their encounters with different professionals services agencies what happened to them along the way we were able to try and go back and then analyze where were the moments where an opportunity was taken or lost or a turning point or you know something happened that seemed to tip things for the better or sometimes for the not so better do do you know what I mean in social work is all about trying to um, you know engender change for people and I think that longitudinal approach that we took was really helpful in just trying to see the change over time and then say something about it about what seemed to help or hinder it and also what those fathers were doing for themselves you know how how they were trying to often in really challenging circumstances make changes and the ways that they often stalled failed tried again a, a really clear idea that came from it was was how interrupted changes it's not linear it's not straightforward as saying well you know you do this and that and then your trajectory is up and it all gets better and it's all fine it strikes me that your study I mean it's fascinating how much access you've had to all sorts of people's lives and that must feel very privileged to have done so but actually what you can draw out of there is the nuance about it and really think about what it is like to be a father within this system so so what did you find in the qualitative studies it was very much trying to build some kind of relation research relationship with fathers and and take as full a picture as we could of their lives so we talked to them about their you know material circumstances their health in terms of mental physical emotional health their relationships their own family histories particularly in the up against it study i think one very striking finding was that those fathers who'd been through repeat care proceedings were vulnerable and that they may often they often might pose risks arising from those vulnerabilities but they very much needed to be seen as at risk themselves they you know very often had hugely difficult histories where with with a lot of adversity loss estrangement being in out of home care themselves material you know poverty basically i think it's really important to kind of factor that in to much of what we found was was the material conditions in which families were were trying to exist and in which uh, fathers were were you know were attempting to make some sort of life or or repair relationships 
yeah, often men are portrayed as a risk. So you're saying that it kind of stops people from seeing the vulnerability, do you think? Certainly, or? yeah. I, th- I think one one broad argument that we try to make from both studies is to to promote much more of a kind of both and approach to working with fathers. I think we, you know, if we ask the question, why should we work better with fathers, then I would answer that in two main ways. You know, one is that fathers are often not held as accountable for the safe care of children. You know, they're not held accountable to the same degree as mothers. We see a system that often focuses very heavily on on mothers. Some people say over, you know, making mothers overly responsible. So, so we need to do work better with fathers, you know, for those reasons. But at the same time, we need to work better with fathers in order to validate and support them as parents in their own right and to, you know, to really flag up the difference they make to their children where they you know can engage in positive safe care and relationships it's so important so we need it's that both and just and in a sense that's something that happens in social work all the time that that's part of the dilemma and the challenge and the beauty of it often is that you're working with people where they are and it's that combination of the problems and and the risks to use a you know difficult term and the resources and the potential resources that they offer I think there's more willingness and confidence to to do that in work with mothers than there is with fathers. And so I would say that a key argument from our research is that we need that more of that, you know, both and approach to working with fathers and not a kind of binary response of they're either a risk, uh, you know, and we keep them away or they're, you know, they're almost sanctified in that they're so mm. they're all good or all bad. It, it's, we, we know that it's much more nuanced and complex than that. And yes, Natasha, you're right. I think that that very much came out of the stories um, that we heard. And, and again, and those those accounts from fathers themselves, including their own reflections about their lives as they'd got older and what they now thought about things that had happened to them or encounters with children's services that, had, that were in the past. It seems to me that um, sort of what you're hinting at is that the societal's gendered approach that we tend to have gender roles as influenced the way that fathers get treated. Is, is that what you're saying? You know, to to a degree, it's it's not surprising given my background in sociology that that I feel that it's really valuable to bring a kind of sociological perspective to to the research that that we've done. That that's what we've tried to do. And yes, part of that I think is recognizing and trying to you know think really carefully about the broader and deeper backdrop of of sort of gender norms, gender expectations, particularly around care and parenting. And if you like, that shapes what the mothers and fathers do but it also shapes what practitioners do none of us can kind of escape that if you like um which you know so part of what we're arguing for is to to take a much more gender sensitive approach to to practice another way that i've tried to explain it is that often fathers are able to opt out of, of parenting or of caring work in ways that just aren't available to women you know not least because of the continuing expectation that caring and parenting is is women's work you know we could argue there are ways that fathers can kind of slide out of that or opt out but at the same time fathers are much more likely than mothers to be seen as optional an optional extra to their child an optional parent and therefore not not as important that is really problematic to mothers to children and to fathers in all kinds of different contexts including the ones that we're talking about these very high stakes high-end local authority or, or court interventions i think that definitely resonates with 
other work on fathers engaging in that. But also, I think my own experience quite often it was this: if you have a case, someone would say, "Oh, it'd be, it'd be good to know what the father thinks." Or has anyone spoken to that? It's always it would be good to, but it, you know, it's not seen as the, the main brunt of of your assessment. Um, but at the same time, because of that exclusion, when often when pet, when fathers are approached. There was an def- immediate defensiveness, especially I think it was later on in in proceedings, that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So the defences are up. You know, why have you ignored me so so long all the while? And, and difficulty in cooperation between the two parties. And then that because of the time limits and restrictions on social work practice, building that relationship can be very difficult. Yeah, yeah, and that was another argument that we made for you know from the counting fathers in. So the first study was. If we're talking about father engagement and practice approaches, we made this point about time, but also timing of approaches to fathers, you know, and that came from what fathers were saying to us in terms. So so it's important for practitioners to think not just about whether they've done something, whether they contacted the father or, or not, or whether they invited him to a meeting, but also when, when did that happen in the process? And I think in fairness from our, you know, we did on Counting Fathers In, we also did a lot of focus group work with social workers and social work managers. And in a sense, that confirmed some of these feelings about that often fathers are involved as a last resort or as as much later on in a process that can be very problematic for building constructive working relationships I think that as a rule of thumb maybe to work to make it routine and not optional but also to think about the timing of when that happens you know there's enough discussion isn't there about how relationship-based practice is so important but it needs time it needs context you know it needs trust all of those things can't just happen yeah with it without resourcing you've been sort of looking at fathers for a long time now a number of years have you noticed any changes in practice any anything that you think ah, that's really good stuff that we're seeing there I think it's hard I think things are changing but as I as I mentioned previously that it's a it's a fascinating topic but also slightly frustrating one in that that many of the arguments about the reasons for working more effectively with fathers and and some of the barriers and they do seem to persist over time so for a researcher that's an amazing research puzzle you think well what's going on you know why 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 are we still facing some of these things again part of my response to that I think is because of how deep-rooted you know some of these ideas around gender and parenting are but I think they're you know they're there is a willingness, there is an interest in developing practice. I think it is becoming more of an expectation, you know, more of a requirement, if you like. That that seems to have a lot of potential, but but it also needs resourcing. I, I do feel that in terms of developing practice, it can't just stay at the level of individual practitioners. I don't feel that's fair in a way that we can't, you know, there needs to be systemic change. There needs to be strategic change and resourcing of that do you know what I mean we can't we can't just expect that this will all happen by individual social workers I mean if you look at services for fathers the picture is very patchy you know it's a kind of another one of these postcode lottery situations in that so services that are specifically for fathers 
they they exist, but they're very often short term funded or they're pilots or they're very reliant on the the passion and drive of, of particular individuals. There's some really great work, but that needs to be sort of scaled up. So if we go back to thinking about repeat care proceedings and the intensive work that, that often needs to be offered to parents um, who've experienced repeat removals of children from their care or who continue to be at risk of that happening again, there is some hugely skillful, sensitive, uh, longer term, holistic wraparound work being done with mothers in that situation. But there simply is not the same service available currently for fathers. There are some projects that work more with couples. And that's another thing that we flagged up from our research really was was the phenomena of, of fathers or of couples returning to repeat care proceedings. But so so there is some hugely skillful work out there. But again, for me, sometimes it seems to come back to there being a slightly different confidence or willingness to apply that same approach to fathers as is with mothers. So I think that's really interesting point you made there about the couples, because I think that was an element of the, the most recent study that came out in the Kafka's data. Yes, it was. So, yeah, if I can just mention a couple of the sort of quantitative findings that we felt were were interesting and, and maybe a little bit surprising. In around 80 percent of, of all care proceedings cases, fathers were recorded and and part you know they were named as party to the proceedings so they were not absent in that sense they were there I know that you know that equally means that in 20% of cases you know it was mothers appearing with no father recorded so that in a way that demonstrates two aspects of the same problem we need to work better with the fathers who are at least known to the to the care proceedings you know or to the court but we also need to work better to address the group of fathers who appeared to be missing. But then when we looked at the fathers who returned to the court more than one time, it was really interesting to see that the majority of those, so 79% of those, three, three out of four fathers who return in a second care proceedings case, were coming back with the same partner. And I think that was surprising, maybe, you know, alongside some sort of practice wisdom, some some notions of, of fathers as kind of serial relationships, sort of, you know, roving multiple partners, that kind of thing. But what we saw was this phenomena of couples facing repeat removals of children. When we looked at how that mapped onto the qualitative insights, we could see that often that might mean couples who split up, got back together, split up, got back together, who were maybe required to split up as part of a care proceedings case. But nonetheless, if you look over time, there were parents who were going through child protection and care proceedings together sort of more than one time. And so one way or another, it kind of suggests that we perhaps need to think again about it's partly about working with fathers where they are part of a couple and not necessarily where couples have separated. And what do we do about working with couples who, despite the many problems that they might be facing, they want to stay together? It blows my mind a little because it, it sort of blows <laughs> that myth of, and again, I suppose it goes back to your gender approach that, you know, mums quite often get blamed when actually what we're seeing is that actually we need to support both mum and dad in these in these instances. I also don't want to shy away from the very real problems around domestic violence and where couples, you know, where it may be a very dangerous couple relationship. And also the, you know, to not shy away from the fact that in care proceedings cases, very often domestic violence is 
one of the factors um, leading to the local authorities' concern. But again, we need to develop our practice around how we understand abusive relationships, how we respond to those. And, and again, it's a both-and situation. There are both situations where fathers or partners, you know, where, where men are responsible for, for abusive behaviour, and there are situations where, you know, that couple relationship is very unstable and dangerous, or where fathers are the victim of domestic violence and abuse. So, again, that, that's the most contentious, emotive, complex area of some of this high-end yeah work that happens you know we need to be able to address that complexity and, and not shy away from it I suppose. And this is the thing isn't it the, the big data does not show us the nature of those relationships which is something that your more qualitative analysis shines a light on but I think one of the things it does show in, in that repetition is that whatever was happening the first time hadn't changed by the second time there is something in acknowledging that those relationships between the parents whatever the situation is enduring i think you're right and you know so it's almost so although these cases are often described as recurrent care proceedings cases often it's the problems that are recurrent that's what's recurring maybe i mean in the in the research that's been done with mothers in this situation and in our own research some of those problems you know are deep rooted in in parents own childhoods um it may be unresolved trauma unresolved loss you know ongoing mental health issues as a result or you know reliance on substance substances as coping mechanisms you know so so both the problems and people's coping mechanisms are not working for them and as you say if, if those issues aren't addressed and again acknowledging the the dynamics of those that if you perhaps if you're focusing services on one partner and not the other then maybe the the effect is going to be less powerful or you're just not acknowledging how that couple's dynamics are interconnected so the mental health of one will impact on the other again it's an argument for 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 looking at services with couples as well as focusing on you know individual parents and what they may need to address in in their individual lives so in your working with the dads in your study, you must have got an understanding of how they felt about that whole practice, which we don't see in the big data. What was the emotional load that was going on with these processes for these dads? We were definitely interested in, if you like, the emotional impact of both child protection and care proceedings and the you know the loss of children from from their care not least because it's been a very powerful finding that's come out of the research that's been done with mothers facing those situations so we of course we were really interested to explore that and again i think there were both similarities and points of difference that we can understand if we you know use that kind of gendered perspective so for for the fathers there were very powerful feelings of loss and grief so in in you know the research on mothers there's this use of that idea about disenfranchised grief so this feeling that you've you know it's it's like a bereavement but you're not allowed to talk about it it's almost an illegitimate form of grieving fathers in our study experienced very similar feelings and enduring feelings of loss and pain and not knowing what to do with that pain uh, and again, then devising coping mechanisms that may or may not play well for them. And, you know, again, coping mechanisms aren't necessarily 
a good thing. They they can work against us. Um, so so yes, that loss and grief, but also guilt and shame, feelings of shame, which I think are connected very much with perhaps defensive responses, or you know may come out as anger. You know I think we saw for for many fathers, and even you know fathers able to reflect on that in some instances that 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 pain. And think I'm remembering this quote right. He just said everything comes out as anger. And again, you know, that that can play very badly for fathers if they are involved with professionals or going to meetings or they're attempting to to stay engaged in a process. I think we found similarities in terms of both the depth and the often overwhelming nature of, of some of those emotions and including keeping children in mind. Many of these fathers may have lost some some of them had lost children to public care many years ago but they were still very present in their thinking and in their reflections or thinking about how to perhaps reclaim or rebuild or repair relationships with children from other relationships or who had been in care for a long time mothers do that also but i think a point of gender difference so one in terms of how some of those emotions spilled out and, and father's capacity to have some sort of emotional regulation but also in the responses to those painful threatening feelings you know on one level if we think about it if we feel threatened any of us if we feel humiliated or ashamed you know we we are often defensive or deflecting or find ways to deal with that that don't that don't completely sort of crush us as a and our feeling of worth as a human being so i think in, in some ways you can understand rationally why uh, fathers might behave in some of the ways that they do but we need to kind of acknowledge what's behind that behavior and, and some of that behavior may, may genuinely be dangerous and intimidating and difficult and not acceptable but nonetheless what lies behind it you know could be part of that man's vulnerability for want of a better word or you know need for some support or some engagement in order to address that um so i think that you know there, there's already there's other research around working with some of those very threatening emotions like guilt and shame and humiliation you know we know that that's relevant for child protection social work and for early intervention work or assertive outreach work where you're trying to sort of draw in some of the most marginalized parents that that we're working with and i just think that's it that is so needed and relevant for working with fathers in this situation that sort of nicely leads into my next question really because i'm just thinking about if you're a practitioner that's that can be really scary you know if you're walking into um an arena where you know someone's going to be aggressive you you anticipating that and i wondered if the the fathers that you spoke to offered any tips on how a practitioner might approach them in those moments so in terms of what fathers said about social workers um it was more about traits around you know well, very much as you might expect very much being on the high alert to whether the social worker was judging them or not some very complex dilemmas about where the past belongs you know what do we do with people's past at what point do we say that was in the past and you you might be different this time or if you're asking someone to show remorse how do they do that in a way that's acceptable to social workers how do fathers have their remorse or apology or acknowledgement accepted you know what, what does that look like I, I think fathers were often you know very anxious and sometimes again defensive about how it was possible to show remorse to a social worker 
in practice with working with mothers and fathers who've experienced repeat care proceedings and again the work with mothers acknowledges this it takes time and it's about managing that accountability that challenge and support in a way that isn't annihilating their moral identity i'm very interested in in the ideas about moral identity and how that taps into our roles as parents and in a way for me that explains why it's so emotive and so powerful for people and why they may feel fathers and mothers may feel hugely hypersensitive and under threat when their position as a mother or a father is challenged because that's not just about their practical parenting role it's about their moral identity as a as a human being as, as well as as a father or a mother when we talk about the gender differences i think within the masculine identity male aggression when your family is threatened mm. is you know valorized you know all the hollywood films about you know mm. when righteous justice for someone that threatens your family um and and so when they're i always think if a man has, you know, if he's lost his positive identity, the ability to be a positive father, how, it, how does he assert being a man? Mm. And actually, it plays very badly within a relationship with social services, but actually within a lot of society, male aggression is held up as that is how men behave and how they act. In a way, one option available to some fathers facing either the first or repeat sets of care proceedings, the, the potential removal of children, there is a narrative about fighting it and and in a sense for some of those fathers they did have a mind for their children in the future in terms of you know they would say well if my children come to find me in the future I need them to know that I fought for them it's a huge dilemma because on the one hand you can see that that would might not play well for them if fathers are seen as difficult aggressive constantly challenging things constantly you know rejecting things or defending against things or making their own counter challenges to the process but at the same time the, the idea about fighting it kind of makes sense in that context mm. and as Cassie and it might also be linked to what do I do as a man as well as a as as a father but again, I think within it, there, there was this sense about thinking about the future and what would their children, what are their children going to, and even that is linked to shame, isn't it? What are their children going to think about them later on when they know, you know, or, or come looking for them and say, like, why weren't you there for us? Or like, why did you let that happen? What did you do that we ended up in care? You know, that that's there for fathers, just as it is there for mothers too. So if there was one takeaway main message <laughs> from all of this. <laughs> okay um i'm gonna cheat and maybe have two or three so Thanks. but but say them quickly <laughs> um, but so definitely this both and we need to develop you know you know we need to think about that dad's being able to opt out but being seen as optional we need to do something about that so we need to work on that approach of both challenge and support that really needs to be there I think we need a much more gender sensitive approach we need to be tuned in to where there's points of similarity and difference are if you like where gender difference makes a difference to fathers and mothers going through these kinds of high stakes local authority processes so be gender sensitive keep questioning you know or just be alert for instance some of the terminology and think critically about things like father absence or father not involved and even non-resident father actually so the fatherhood institute have been doing some really interesting work to develop different terminology to sort of 
in a way, again, position uh, fathers as more equally and equally accountable. So to talk about own father households rather than non-resident fathers, which I think is really interesting. But all too often, words like father's absent, father's not involved, we need to challenge that in practice and be alert to where it just slides in and can act as a gatekeeping mechanism to think, oh, well, that's that, you know, and you you might lose a really important opportunity there. <laughs> I think I said three. <laughs> Brilliant. Three very important things, though, I think, Georgia. Yes. I'm sure I can say more, but yeah, <laughs> that'll do. <laughs> it's been absolutely fascinating, and I really could talk to you all afternoon, but I just want to say thank you so much for giving up your time for this. Yeah, I, I suppose the next step is more research, and um, and I look forward to seeing what comes next. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been really interesting talking with you and being able to try and um, explain some of some of our findings and some of our hopes and some of my thoughts on it. So I really hope people find that interesting. Hello again. A powerful conversation with Georgia that raises so many questions about how we support families and how the lens of gender reveals both significant differences and important similarities in the way mothers and fathers are engaged with and supported when it comes to safeguarding and care. Dr Phillips' most recent work with colleagues at the University of East Anglia and Lancashire University has shone a powerful light on the reality of how fathers appear and reappear within the processes of care proceedings. It dispels some notions of feckless dads and children with multiple partners to show that the majority who face the recurring nightmare of losing their children to social care do so with the same partners. But at the same time, importantly, 20% of those fathers' details are missing from those care proceedings. So that is a stark gender difference in the data. But the more qualitative element of Georgia's research showed these fathers can face the same feelings of loss and guilt and grief as mothers do. Now it is important, as Georgia emphasises, to understand that in many of these cases the destructive or unhealthy relationships between the parents may well be the cause for some of the safeguarding concerns, and the behaviours of one or other or both of those parents may well be the cause of significant harm. But this is not a problem solved by the exclusion of fathers. Breaking the cycle of recurrence calls for a greater commitment to engaging fathers and an equity of provision when it comes to support. As Georgia stated, we need to identify when gender differences do actually make a difference. And that means not just the difference in their needs, but also the evident differences in how we treat them. <laughs>